letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to Jerusalem for the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Three things we're going to talk about to keep your eyes out for. Our tempting responses to life in Babylon. So tempting responses to life in Babylon. Faithful responses to life in Babylon. And where we find the power to be this faithful, fruitful presence in Babylon. Let me pray for us and we'll start to get into this. Lord Jesus, come tonight. Be present in your power. You didn't just have a plan to prosper your people, but apparently you had a plan to prosper those who were not your people in Babylon too, because you sent your people to those who were not your people to pray for them and bless them and serve them and lift their burdens. So first, Lord Jesus, I pray tonight for those who are not your people, and they know it or they wonder if they're yours. I pray that you would get personal with them tonight, eye to eye, and show them yourself, that your eyes are on them, that there is a future for them in you, and then I pray that you would speak to the rest of us too, who are yours, who know we're yours, that you would just deepen this this missionary heart inside of us, that we might Receive your ministry and be a part of your ministry to others. We pray this in your name and power. Amen. Well, the Babylon that Elizabeth just read about that is being talked about in Jeremiah chapter 29 was a sprawling, enormous metropolis, kind of the center of of the world at that point. Tons and tons and tons of people. 
who lived there? Uh, the, the dominant culture lived there. Obviously, the Babylonians lived there. It was their city. But also living in the midst, all mixed up with the Babylonians, were people, literal exiles, that the Babylonians had conquered in different wars, in different battles as they took their land. Sam talked a little bit about this at Winter Retreat, if you were there, as we were looking at the book of Daniel. They were very shrewd in how they treated the people that they conquered. Um, they could have subjugated those people. Like, imagine conquering a land of millions of people. You have a big problem on your hands. Um, how are we going to manage all of these people without them, like, rising up and revolting and taking all of our stuff and killing all of our soldiers and taking their land back? How are we going to manage them? How are we going to get food? How are we going to kind of get the trains run on time? It's a big problem you have once you've conquered people. And the Babylonians were thinking about it. And they're like, well, if we subjugate them and oppress them in their land, they're just going to rise up and we're going to have another war on our hands in a few years. So they didn't do that. They could have just driven them out of the land, pushed them into some other territory. But what are the people going to do then? What... What do you have to do other than rise up and come back and try to retake your land? Again, another battle. So what they did is they deported. They would, they would take as captives a, a big chunk of the population and take them. And it was kind of like a forced study abroad. A little bit of kidnapping. A very immersive experience. In the ways of Babylon, the spirituality of Babylon... Um, the worship of Babylon, the culture of Babylon. And by doing this, they discipled these conquered people into their culture. They assimilated them into the culture. It's a weird, weird wives' tales, but the question, how do you boil a frog? I'm like, who's boiling frogs? But how do you boil a frog uh, without it jumping out? Very slowly, gradually turn up the heat. This is how the Babylonians discipled people to become Babylonians, worldly in the way that they thought, in their desires, in the, in the kind of ways that they wanted to live their lives, in how they thought about life, how they thought about God, what they thought the purpose of life was, very effective. So one of the people groups that's exiled and deported there and is living there is the Jews, God's people, who were in Jerusalem. Jeremiah and a big chunk of Jews are still living in Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter. He's a prophet. He's writing a letter to the Jewish exiles who were living in Babylon. And the fact that they were living in the midst of Babylon was a huge problem for God's people. Babylon, uh, even, you might have even heard it used this way today, Babylon was a synonym. It was so evil, so corrupt, so depraved, so wicked that it had become a synonym or a nickname for evil itself. We do this with certain cities today, like Las Vegas, Sin City. Las Vegas is kind of synonymous. Like if you tell people you went to Las Vegas, you think you owe them an explanation of like what you weren't doing there. Oh, it was just a business trip. I was just there for like an internship thing. It wasn't like all the things that people thought you were doing in Las Vegas. Well, Babylon is the same way. It's a stand-in word for the godless world a world in rebellion against God, a world that has no time for God, no room for God, people with their chest puffed out, just kind of arrogantly and autonomously living. Um, and here's the connection. Peter, as Peter finishes his letter that we've been studying all spring, 1 Peter, when he's saying his goodbyes at the end of the letter, he's writing from Rome, 
And do you know what he symbolically says at the end of the letter? He who is in Babylon sends his greetings. He's talking about the Christians living in Rome. And he's saying, Rome, hundreds and hundreds of years later, the Roman Empire, it's just like Babylon. It's just like all the kingdoms of the world. Same thing. So Babylon, uh, even though it's an ancient city, is kind of a stand-in word. It's a synonym even for just the world today, the godless world today, the world in rebellion against God, the world that has no time for God. So here's the key question that this passage raises, and it's why we're talking about it. How are God's people, how are we to live in a hostile culture that doesn't share your God, that doesn't share your beliefs, that doesn't share your definitions of just about anything, that doesn't share your values, that doesn't share your loves or your hates? How do you live well in that place? Is that even possible to live well in Babylon? So we've got to wrestle with that question. It's really the whole question that's been driving this sermon series, but it's helpful if we can peer over the shoulders of brothers and sisters long before us, 2,500 years prior, and to say, and to be fly on the wall and listen, how did they answer that? Or better yet, how did God answer that question for his people back then? He probably has the same answer. And here's the thing. It's a shocking answer. Shocking answer. Never what you'd expect. So first what I want to do is look at the, the, the responses to living in Babylon that tempt us. And then I want to look at a faithful, fruitful response. First, the, the, the responses that tempt us, that call out to us, and that we, when we're not thinking about it, we just fall into this stuff. Well, the first one is what I would call spiritual segregation. Spiritual segregation. If you have a paper Bible, you can look up just before this passage in chapter 28, verse 11. There were false prophets going around. Like, you got to understand, the people of God were, were devastated. Their world was coming unglued. They'd just been taken out of their land and put in Babylon. This is getting kind of loud. There's an echo. Sorry, I sound like, am I, am I preaching like fire and brimstone right now? It sounds really loud and angry. <laughs> um, Spiritual segregation, so it's, it's, a, it's a cataclysm for the people of God. And so they had all these false prophets who were coming and trying to comfort them. And they, they basically said, verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 11, they said, uh, Thus says the Lord, hey, y'all, I got a message from God. Here's the deal. God's going to break King Nebuchadnezzar in the next two years. Sometime in the next two years, Nebuchadnezzar's going to go down. In other words, hey, no need to unpack your bags. No need to make yourself at home. We're only going to be here for a little bit. No need to talk to the natives. No need to build relationships. No need to kind of get out there. Just kind of sit tight. It's only going to be a little while, and then we'll be back to home. That was the false prophecy. You're just passing through. Don't bother with Babylon. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, hearing that shouldn't sit well with you because you're probably thinking, well, that's not what Peter says. It's not at all what Peter has been calling us to, this spiritual segregation where we set up kind of a parallel world, where we have uh, our Christian version of everything that the world has. We have our schools and our clubs and our intramural teams in our organizations, in our social circles, hermetically sealed from all of the other stuff out there. 
because we're in our self-contained bubble. You should know by now, if you've been here, that's not what Peter's calling us to. It's the opposite of what Peter's called us to. It's the opposite of what Jesus called us to. Salt in the world, light in the world, yeast in the loaf, stars in a dark sky, scattered out. But this is what false prophets always do. They separate resident and alien, elect and exile. They so emphasize one that at the expense of the other. So these false prophets are emphasizing, you're aliens, you don't fit in here, you know, to hell with the world. Let's just kind of gather up and sit tight and wait it out. Just kind of, let's just all, you know, spend our UGA years just together. Don't worry about anybody else. Let's just kind of do our thing. This is our little sub- subculture, our little community. Th- that's the message of the false prophets. You're an alien. You don't fit in. Stop trying. You're a pilgrim. You're a migrant. But Peter, but scripture says you're a pilgrim priest. You're a migrant missionary. You're an exile, yes, but you're elect, chosen by God, part of a holy nation, part of a team, a priesthood, unleashed on the world to bless and serve the world. And to set the record straight about who God really is and what he's like, not just through your words, but through your living, through your life. False prophets were back then, they're still around today, and they're always calling us to spiritual segregation. Leave the world, leave the places God has put you, and come back over here. What does this look like in our day today? Well, I've already kind of mentioned some of it. We kind of build our own version of everything. We have, you know, you look up each year of your life, you have less and less contact, relationships, conversations with, exposure to those who don't have a church background or those who aren't Christians, those who don't share your exact beliefs. Especially as you get into adulthood, when it's harder to spend time with people, it's harder to get together with people outside of college. Uh, it, happened, it's, it gets into the fast lane. And if you're not working at it to maintain those relationships, it gets really hard. Um, I'll be gentle here, but I feel like this is the way this manifests that, um, now as well. It happens, maybe you get to the end of your week and you look up, and someone's like, what did you do this week? And as you rattle off all the stuff that you did this week, you realize, I'm, like at a, I'm, at like at a, I'm at a ministry thing like every night of the week. I got my Monday night ministry that I go to. Then I go to another ministry on Tuesday, and I come to RUF on Wednesday. And I go to this other Bible study on Thursday and another group on Friday morning. And then Sunday morning is for church as I church hop around. And it seems, it seems, and I think we, we, we talk about it as if it's a mark of maturity. But I think what, what often it can be, and by the way, I do, it is legitimate, it is wise to kind of learn your place, move around to find your home. But I'm talking about kind of when it's year two, when it's year three, when it's year four. And we think that this is what the Christian life is supposed to be. And we think it's a mark of maturity, but it's probably more a mark of missing a memo. That God's desire for your life is not to write notes about messages every night of the week so that you can go improve your life more and more in your roommates, in your coworkers, in your lab mates, in your classmates, in your city mates, in your campus mates, 
have no contact with you, never benefit from your life. And you say, well, who is benefiting from all of this intake, this consumption? Well, the the thinking goes, well, you're benefiting. I'm not sure you are. Because the outflow of all of that is supposed to be love of neighbor, love of neighbor. Not self-advancement in a laboratory, but out in the real world, using the ways that God is growing and blessing us to bless others. So God is not a fan of spiritual segregation. Let me qualify that because we've been talking the past few weeks of you're holy, you're holy, you're holy. That's where you are distinct. This is a holy, the church, not RUF. The church is a holy community. It's, it's the special teams, the special forces of humanity. It's set apart for a special mission. That's where the distinctiveness comes in. That's, in a sense, God has already segregated you out. He has already plucked you out and made you his. So you're unique in that way. But as we go about our lives in this world, in Babylon, how are we to live? The false prophets said, hey, chill out, no worries. It's going to all be fine. You don't need to get to know anybody. Don't put down roots. The other way, uh, the other temptation that we face, and the Jews in Babylon absolutely face this, and we face it today, is assimilation. Remember, that was the Babylonians' desire. That was the whole intent. You're naive if you think the dominant cultures in whatever society you live in, ours is American culture, you're naive if you think the dominant culture isn't trying to disciple you as a beautiful, um, as a beautiful little protege of its values, its worldview, its definitions. It's absolutely trying to disciple and shape you in that way. And that's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, if you've seen any of the documentaries on social networks and the people, they won't even let their kids use those devices. They won't even let their, their own family be on those apps because they know how intensely strategic the attempt to disciple and shape a whole culture is around those values. That's from their mouth, not mine. So the Babylonians are trying to assimilate them. That's a temptation to be assimilated. Verse 6, this is where uh, this shows up in the passage. It's buried at the end of this sentence where Jeremiah is saying, hey, y'all, while you're in Babylon, in other words, hey, unpack. You're going to be there a while. You're going to be there apparently at least for three generations, your kids and your grandkids. He says, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Here's the point. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. God is not simply talking about maintain a healthy birth rate. As a subculture living in Babylon, I don't want to see your population decline. He's not... It's not about population numbers and a birth rate. He's saying, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose what makes you distinct. Don't throw up in the air the whole project of me creating a special people that have my spirit to move out in the world to bless the world. He's saying, I'm still at work, so be fruitful and multiply. Plan A is still in effect, is what he's saying. So don't dilute this holy, special, godly, loving culture. Don't compromise as if there's no hope. 
and it's all falling apart now. That's more along the lines of what he's saying. The temptation to assimilate is understandable. We all feel that pressure. It happens in little ways that if not resisted over time become big ways. It starts out with, it's just the path of least resistance. If I don't talk about faith, if I don't talk about Jesus, if I don't ever share the gospel, I don't look different. I don't, I don't get all those stereotypes of other Christians pinned on me. I don't have to answer for that stuff. I'll look better. My friends will respect me. I'll be seen as more enlightened. The negative energy won't be placed on me. It'll be placed on somebody else. I'll get to live my life however I want. I'll be able to fly under the radar and be left alone. And I'm sure there's more. But what's, what's in common with all of those motivations? Self, they're all self-serving. Nobody ever compromises. Nobody ever assimilates out of love of their neighbor. The only reason we ever compromise is out of love for ourselves, And we should be honest about that and frank about that and not try to pretty it up with disingenuous motivations. That's the way it is, right? If you think about it, it's self-serving. It's self-protective. That's why we compromise. It's why we assimilate. Never out of love except for ourselves. This is another way that, like, that we are prone to and tempted to just exploit and use and consume the culture. We're not contributing anything to it. We're just trying to use it to further our own self-project or our own agenda. And it promises stability. It promises like a return of the equilibrium of the status quo. So we're like, great, if I can fly into the radar, I'll just be left alone. If I can compromise a little bit here, I'll kind of live to fight another day. But here's the problem. Uh, the cultures of the world are changing by the year. They always are. Any of you are historians? Do you know how rapidly what the society thinks is normal? Do you know how rapidly that changes? I had the, the benefit of being here 20 years ago as a student. A lot of things that feel very normal to y'all would have been outrageous for any of us to think 20 years ago. And you would have thought some of the ways we thought about some of the hot button issues, you would have thought, man, how, what? Who thinks like that? That's 20 years in Athens, Georgia, at the exact same campus. But it I'd say that's like four or five iterations of, of belief systems and worldviews later from just 20 years ago. Five years from now, when you're looking at Instagram, you're like, oh, the, the good old days, RUF on a Wednesday night. Those students are going to think about life and death and God and spirituality and sexuality and gender very differently than you do. Don't you see how rapidly it's changing? If you try to compromise to culture and peg yourself to the cultural beliefs of the moment, you're not just making one compromise, you are giving yourself over to a lifetime of always evolving. And as you get older and older, you know who you are less and less. You have less and less of a sense of who you are, where you're going, what it's all about, because the goalposts change by the year. So spiritual segregation is not God's call for his people. Assimilation and compromise is not God's call for his people. Let me summarize those with an illustration and then we'll push on to what is his call to his people. Think about this. 
um, I guess there's three kinds of people who come to Athens, Georgia. There's tourists, all the game day crowd, or whatever. They just come. They're like, Athens, cool college town. The tourists, they come and vacation here or spend a week in here. Um, there's renters or kind of temporary residents. Maybe you'd, some of you would include yourself in that. I'm here for four years and I'm gone. And then there's the residents, the people who own land here. This is their city. Each of those people has a very different relationship with Athens or UGA. And they behave accordingly. Uh, the vacationers, the tourists, they have no connection, no skin in the game of Athens, Georgia. So not only, like, you, have you seen campus the morning after a game? Of course you have. Looks like a tornado came through before they clean it up. Uh, and all these people from out of town will just, like, throw all their trash on the ground and walk right by it. And you're like, in what world is that normal behavior? You're, like, literally just left, like, a whole garbage can full of stuff all scattered around on this beautiful campus. Uh, but they, there's no buy-in. There's no skin in the game. It's not their town. They have no connection to it, no responsibility to it. And so that's the way they live, hands off. Someone else will clean that out. That's someone else's problem. It's consumeristic. It's uninvested. There's no mentality. Like when you go on vacation, let's say you're going to, you know, I don't know, some Caribbean island on spring break uh, this, this, this spring, you're not going to be bothered by the systemic problems of that culture, are you? Because you're not there for that. You're like, y'all are messing with my vibe. Like, I don't want to hear about it. Let me just kind of have my time on the beach. Is that how you relate to UGA in Athens? That hands-off attitude of like, I have no skin in this game. I have no roots here. I have no responsibilities to these people, to this town, to its burdens, to its groans. Or a renter, a temporary resident. There's a little bit more buy-in there. The problems might bother you, but you don't see yourself as part of the solution, right? The problems bother you. They frustrate you. Traffic. Or whatever. I don't, whatever problems. <laughs> I almost start a, a, a list now. The problems bother you, but you don't see yourself as part of the solution. It's like, I'm, I'm on the way out the door. Is that your attitude? To the, to the loneliness you see at UGA? Or that commuter feel you feel at UNG where no one really knows each other? The problems you see in your sorority, do you have that mentality towards it? If like, I'm a senior, I'm going to be out the door soon. This isn't really my problem. You know, you know where this is going. God's, God's call, he told his people, look, you're going to be in Babylon a little longer than two years. Try 68 more years. 70 years. Before I bring you back home. And he says, it's time to unpack those bags. Can't live out of a suitcase for three generations. It's time to buy property. It's time to open up a business. It's time to not just you get married, but your son and daughter should get married too. And you should have grandkids. And you should plant gardens. You should be invested in the turf and the soil of this place. That's what God has called his people to. Not users and exploiters and consumers of a culture, but contributors, salt and light and yeast and leaven in a culture, priests serving in the place that God has sent you.
It's a mentality of this city's problems are my problems because God has, let, God has called me to live in Athens. Um, the loneliness of some of our international student friends on campus, that's my problem. It's our problem. Because this is my campus. The stuff that I see that just drives me wild in the fraternity, the sorority, the organization that I lead, it's my responsibility. I can't fix it all, but I can do something. Jeremiah, or God says to his people, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. And then he says, pray to me because if it prospers, you will pro- prosper. God has tied the well-being of his people to the well-being of kind of the godless people around them. It's an effective way to teach his people to pray and to work for the good of the city and, and, and to root for the campus. As it were, to walk by and when you see a piece of trash, you pick it up. Kind of being metaphorical there, but maybe literal too. It, you, have a, you have a mentality of I'm an owner. This is my place. God's called me here for these years. So we're not spiritual segregationists. We're not revolutionaries revolting. We're not chameleons blending in. We're missionaries graciously participating in the place God put us. And that, that right there, that last sentence, that's the beginning of a faithful response to where we live, which might, is going to be Athens now. It's going to be Atlanta or Nashville or Charlotte or New York or Decatur or somewhere else for most of y'all afterwards. The beginning of a faithful response is to ask yourself, why am I here after all? How did I get here? Why am I here? Even if where you live right now and the people you live with and the the complex you live in or the circumstances you live under is really, really hard, ask yourself the question, why am I here? There's two answers, two layers of answers. There's a circumstantial answer. Well, because you signed a lease in Pineview. That's why you live in Pineview. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. But you live in Pineview Because Jesus is sovereign and every detail of your life is scripted and you were never ever going to live anywhere else. He strategically embedded you in Pineview. Sorry, but that's where it is. Don't throw anything at me that whole row. Look at this, verse 1. Jeremiah says, it's Nebuchadnezzar who carried God's people into exile. Circumstantial answer. Why are the Jews in Babylon? Oh man, this this invading force came and conquered us. All hope is lost. And then four times in this short little letter, four times, God says, I carried you into exile. I sent you into Babylon. I drove you out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. I did it. Why are you where you are? God has carried you there. It's on purpose. It's strategic. It's for your sake. It's for the sake of the people around you. It's for their blessing. Circumstances brought you there, and God brought the circumstances that brought you there. 
to give you access to a very particular place and a very particular part of campus and very particular people. Who are the people for you? What are those places he's given you access to that no one else in this room really has access to, but you do? Because he's carried you there. Where are the places you are that you don't want to be because it's really hard? You don't fit in. You're strange. And who has God given you access to there? Who are those people? What are those places? What would it look like for you to start paying attention in those places to those people? To unpack your bags, literally, to maybe instead of rushing out of the lab, to linger and to get to know the person that you spend most afternoons with and to maybe say, before the semester's over, I want to get dinner with that guy. I want to go to snelling with her after. I want to get to know her. It's no accident that I'm in this lab with these people or I'm in this department and I get to know all these people no one else gets to know. What would it look like for you to unhurry yourself? Because you'll never do any of that if you're hurried. If it's all about, what's the next thing I gotta get to? The people right in front of you will be invisible to you. In the past few months, I've heard y'all tell me these stories of you unhurrying yourself and paying attention to the places God's given you access to and the people who are there. Real stories. I won't out any of you by name, but some of you are starting a little discussion group or Bible study to reach your friends in the art school. Some of y'all beat them to the punch and did that in the theater department months ago. Some of y'all here. Some of you still get together most weekends with your study abroad group to hang out with them. Not because they're the most exciting, fun people to be with. They ridicule you. They laugh at your faith. They laugh at Jesus. But even in moments when they've lost their filter a little bit, they tell you you're different and they see it and they respect you, and they notice you love them differently than everybody else. Some of y'all looked up somewhere in the middle of your freshman year and you realized there's hundreds, maybe thousands of incoming Christians to UGA every year, and they don't have anyone to give them a foot in the door of any church, any ministry. There's no one trying to connect them. And some of y'all in this room started Arch Retreat. You paid attention to the place you were, the people who were there, and a light bulb must have gone off in your head. Maybe God brought this to my attention for a reason. Some of you all are back here. Afternoons after you've been on campus all day and you're playing basketball with little kids at Downtown Academy or you're tutoring them, you're remembering their names. Seek the peace and prosperity of the place to which I've called you. Pray to me. Pray for it, because when they prosper, you will prosper. When it flourishes, so will you. Don't let those false prophets deceive you. Don't listen to them. You're going to be here a long time. Unpack your bags. I love N.T. Wright's definition of what the church is. He says the church is a colony of heaven right here on earth. It's an outpost, it's a colony where heaven is beginning to spread its culture 
little seed by little seed by little seed that grows up into saplings that grows up into trees. A colony of heaven planting seeds of heaven's culture here in Babylon during your college years and thereafter. Before you dream of changing the world or disqualify yourself because you're like, that's too big of a project, little old me with my faith, with my track record, no way. No one's asking you to change the world. Can you plant a seed? Can you plant a little tiny seed? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a seed, smallest in all the garden. Grows up to be a tree of refuge. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field run to it to take refuge and to find life under its shade. Can you plant a seed that Jesus, through his spirit, not you, grows over time, over decades, over years, and brings prospering? Not just to you, but to the people around you that he's put you near? I want to end with a story, and then I want to end with just a simple question of how can this become true about you? This is a story I came across, and uh, John Tyson wrote a book called Creative Minority. It's a, it's a good book. Uh, it's, about, it's about what we've been talking about this spring. He told the story of a guy named Jadev Paying. He's known as the Forest Man. I'll stick to that name. He's known as the Forest Man. He lives in this northeastern corner of India, right by one of the biggest rivers in that part of India, the uh, Brahmaputra River. There's a little island. It's the biggest river island on the planet. 170,000 people live on this little island in the middle of this massive river. It's called Majuli. It's the name of the island. Monsoons and then glacial melt from the Himalayas happens once a year, and it just floods the river and surges this wall of water down the river that has, over the years, eroded over 70% of the landmass of this island. Villages fall off into the river. Roads, people's houses, were there one year and now they're gone as this island shrinks, as the water erodes it away. So, this man, this forest man, started in 1979 planting trees. Started with one tree, finds little saplings or little seeds, and he puts them in the ground. Let me quote with what happened. In the middle of Majuli, which is a barren wasteland, the forest man has been planting trees since 1979. In that time, he has single-handedly planted more than 1,300 acres of forest to save the island that he calls home. That forest is now close to twice the size of Central Park. When asked if he thought the island could be saved, he replied, yes, my dream is to fill up Majuli with trees. I'll plant them until I take my last breath. Tiny, small, ordinary, repeated little acts not changing the world, not planting a forest, just planting a seed, a tree, repeated over time. We said last week, you're not just a priest. God doesn't call you a priest. He says you are a royal priesthood. So if you're planting little seeds in your little pocket on campus or your city one day and your brothers and sisters are planting seeds of heaven's culture, you talk about people behind their backs in an honorable way, 
You carry your sexuality in a unique and holy way. You're a unique political creature. You're not just kind of another follower of the masses, but you think through these issues. You have a worldview shaped by the Bible. And all your brothers and sisters are being shaped that way too and loving the people around them. You look up one day and a forest is there that God has grown over the generations. How do you become this person? This is where we end, very brief. How do you become this person, whether you're a Christian or not? How do you live well in the midst of people who disagree with you, who don't share your God, who you think, and maybe you're right, are living disastrous lives, have an upside-down worldview that is not true? How do you live in their midst and seek their welfare and pray for them and root for them and serve them calmly? And lovingly by remembering how Jesus stepped in to Babylon, exiled himself to come into your world while you were his enemy. When I was making disastrous decisions in my life, ignorant of reality, clueless about what I was doing in my life, living in open opposition to him, not even giving him a moment's thought most days. This Jesus, who is radically distinct from me, holy and other than me, came near to me and came near to you and lifted your burdens and opened your eyes and told you the truth and served you and died for you. Paul says in Romans 5, while you were weak, while you were ungodly, while you were dead, not after you'd cleaned yourself up and proved it to him. In that condition, Christ died for us. That's the true priest stepping into our exile to change the world. That and his work in you is how you become the kind of person who can pay attention to the places God has carried you and the people who are there, even if it's hard. And if you don't know this, Jesus, again, like every week, look at how the Lord cares for you. He says he has a plan for the Jews. I have a plan to prosper you, not to harm you. I have a future for you. I said it in the prayer, well, apparently he has a future for you too. Apparently he sends his people around you all the time, and maybe it's why you're here tonight, because he intends to prosper you too. So why stay far off from him? Why continue to ignore his advances? Submit, hear him invite you, hear him come to you and embrace him as he embraces you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have talked about a lot tonight. I pray that for each of my friends in the room tonight, one or two little things, one or two little seeds, you would protect. Let it put down roots in their mind. Let it lead to real world changes, even this week. In whatever place you brought to mind when I was talking, the job, the lab, the dorm, the house. I pray that as you have called us to live and seek the good of Babylon, that you would draw those still far from you to yourself. I pray this in your name.